0: Are you ready to overcome the complexities and burdens that come with your success? Join the team at Centura Wealth Advisory in the Live Life Liberated podcast. Now, on to the show.
1: Hello and welcome to Live Life Liberated with the team from Centura Wealth Advisory. Today, Kyle Malmstrom has a special guest on the show and that is Chuck Levin. He's a tax attorney, partner and founder of the Chicago area law firm Levin, Goodman & Cohen creator and presenter of the tax planning forum, which is in its 35th year and the fundamentals of flow through partnership, LLC and S corp tax seminar, which is in its 26th year. Chuck's bio is way too long to cover in depth, but among many other professional achievements, Chuck has been an adjunct professor editor in chief of a professional journal and 30 year monthly tax planning columnist. Kyle good gravy. This guy's bio is crazy. Good. <laughs> <laughs> and I know yeah, I didn't even touch a, on it.
2: I'm honored to have him on. Full disclosure, we are a client of Levin, Goodman & Cohen. Chuck helped us with a Entity reorganization Organization back in 2018. So let's just throw that out there as well. We are clients, and I am super excited to have Chuck on the call with us today. And we're going to cover a lot of ground. So how are you doing, Chuck?
3: I'm doing great, Kyle. Thanks for asking.
2: Thanks for joining. Before we get started on the topic, why don't you share with us who your ideal client is? Who do you guys serve? What do you guys do? Well,
3: we're, we're sort of a boutique uh, a practice. We represent a lot of individuals. We do a lot, a lot of estate planning from people that aren't that wealthy to people that are very wealthy. We do a lot of work in the business arena, represent a lot of businesses, and do all kinds of creative planning like we did for, for you folks back a year or two ago. And we do actually a lot of consulting for professionals. We probably do work for maybe... 150, 200 CPA in accounting firms across the country are sort of very often referred to as their as their tax arm. So, But one of the key things is we like people to pay their bills, Kyle. That's one of the key <laughs> things.
2: Sure, of course. So let's get into it. We're seven months into the year here, Chuck, and the year's going by fast. And today we're going to be talking about creative gifting strategies to consider in light of the potential legislative tax changes. And I would just ask you, what are you seeing, and what's Washington, D.C. considering right now with regards to tax changes, and how is it going to impact our clients, your clients, people all across the U.S.?
3: Well, what we're seeing, Kyle, is a lot of proposals, but no one's really really quite sure what's going to make its way into legislation. And so the problem today, I think it makes it very difficult, is we don't know what the lay of the land is going to be. So what people are doing, people that have their ear to the grindstone or to the ground a little bit, are they're trying to take proactive action to say, we don't know what the law is going to be. We don't know exactly when it's going to be effective or anything is going to be effective. So let's look at our situation and try to consider what we may do that may not be too painful to do, but puts us in a real good position to maximize some of the liberal provisions we have now.
2: And what kind of provisions are you talking about there, Chuck?
3: Well, for instance, we've got an exclusion right now for state tax purposes of $11,700,000. Everyone's got $11,700,000 they can give to anyone they want without a federal estate tax effect to it. And that is becoming somewhat, a lot of proposals are attacking that. First of all, the law itself is going to bring that down to $6 million approximately in 2026. But there's proposals out there to reduce that $11.7 million in 22, maybe even in 21, no one's quite sure, down to only $3.5 million. So people are saying, okay, can I use it now? Can I use it before these changes become effective, not even knowing when they may be effective or whether we even have these changes, what can I do proactively to not lose that what I call these liberal provisions, the ability to give away property to the next generation, or even, as we'll get into this podcast in a few minutes, even if you're not giving it to the next generation, how do I protect the exclusion I have now, which may, and I say may, be lessened?
2: Yeah, in some context there, that's that's reducing that exemption by $8 million at 40%. That's $3.2 million in potential tax. So We're talking big numbers here, aren't we?
3: Yeah, it could be very big numbers. And there's things we can do What we'll talk about in a few minutes that you can even, in a sense, enhance that exclusion by using some discounting techniques, which we'll get into a little bit later. So there's potentially a lot at at stake here. And the hard thing about it, again, is we just don't know. I mean, no one knows what's going to pass and when it's going to pass, if it passes at all. So... I think what I'm finding is a lot of our clients are becoming proactive. They're saying, hey, let's do things now that make sense. Explain to me what they are so I can make reasonable choices, and let's try to do it before it may be too late.
2: What happened? So we've been beating that drum as well, Chuck. If you wait, my my assumption is your office is going to get slammed at the end of the year. Valuation firms are going to get slammed. CPAs, getting everybody in the same room. you think it's going to be possible in that last quarter of this year?
3: Well, I think there's going to be a lot of tired CPAs and appraisers, to tell you the truth. But I I don't think that really is the number one issue because firms like ours, I mean, we'll do what it takes to to get things done. It it could be a, a, a real chore, but we'll get it done. The more important thing, I think, is we don't know again, what changes there are, and if there are changes, when they're effective. So the idea of doing things now is not so much that your CPA or your attorney, or whether it's Levin Goodman Cohen or anyone else, will get it done. It's the fact that maybe may too late to get it done, because the effective date of these changes might not be 22. It could be when they propose the legislation. We, we don't know. And that's really the key element in moving now.
2: So what are you talking to your clients about? Clients that come in and are being proactive, they sit down at your desk, they're, Chuck, here's my situation, here's my financials. What ideas are you guys talking about?
3: Well, first of all, we make this point a very, very important point, and that is, although this is a tax discussion, and obviously people want to reduce taxes, uh, taxes should never be the tail that wags a duck. I mean, the most important thing is family planning. Be sure your assets go to the right people. At the right time, with the right controls, if you want controls. That's a key thing. When I define a good estate plan, what I say is we're going to try to minimize taxes. But really, a good estate plan, very, very simply, is merely when you're finished with it, you sleep better at night. That's a definition of a good estate plan. And the taxes we're saving here, assuming uh, that's, that's often our goal, But those taxes are estate taxes, and they basically are not due until the second spouse passes away. So that's not money that mom and dad or grandma and grandpa are necessarily going to see themselves. They often want to enhance their family and and get more to their family. But the idea is to be sure that they're comfortable with this planning. So that's the first thing. Don't do something that you otherwise are not comfortable with. Sleep well at night. But with that context let's move now, let's try to lock in the exclusions we have now in a way that you're comfortable with. So that, that's the way we start all this. But then where we're moving is often, okay, let it depends on the nature of your state, what assets you need, how old you are. Someone who's 96 may be doing something different than someone who's 46 years old. But in, taking all these things into account, Let's take a look at what you've got and talk about potentially making some gifts. And the first thing we may talk about making is is gifts to kids or gifts to, to, to grandkids. Let's do them now. Let's get these assets out of your estate. And not only the assets, but the growth in these assets. Or if the assets are sold, the assets that are bought with the money that you obtain from selling these assets. All that growth can be out of your estate if you're otherwise, again, comfortable doing so. That depends on the presence. So, I mean, some people talk to clients who have 10 or 15 million dollars and they feel poor. You know, the clients who have 10 or 15 million dollars and they feel very rich. So the, all these things have to be very, very personalized. But again, we're looking to make gifts today, lock in the exclusion to the extent we can, and do it in a comfortable manner.
2: And, and are you making, <clears throat> obviously we can do annual gifting, but when we're talking about locking in the exclusion, we're talking about utilizing the $11.7 million up to the $11.7 million and, and making a significant gift. And that could be, where do we gift that down to the next family, to our heirs? Do we do it to a trust? Where, what are you talking about?
3: Well, got, good question, Kyle. There's all kinds of concepts. I mean, for instance, we'll start off by. Pretty typical to set it in a trust for your kids. These are often referred to as dynasty trusts. So you put it in this trust with the appropriate provisions so that these assets, your children, have access to these assets. But it also, uh, these are assets that today's value and what they may grow to be are not includable in your child's estates, And it will eventually submit to your children's ability to give it to whoever they want to give it to, but it can go to their kids, for instance, which are your grandkids, and not be included in their estates. It can go down generation by generation with the appropriate controls in the documents. And these controls are very, very painless controls. What what you often will do is you put it in a trust. If the kids are old enough, you might make them their own trustees. You then limit their access to the assets by what's referred to as the ascertainable standard, basically health education and support. And They can take whatever they want out of these trusts for their health education and support in their own judgment without asking anyone else. And notwithstanding they have this power, these assets are not encodable in their estate. And eventually when it goes down to the next generation, your grandkids or great-grandkids, whoever it may be, at the appropriate age, they can have those same powers, but it won't; those assets will not be included in their estate. And some people say, well, what do you mean? This is the ascertainable standard. That's what the technical term is. So that's contained in the Internal Revenue Code. And really what it means is you can have access to these assets. So mom and dad or grandma and grandpa have given them away. They've got them out of their estates. It's in a trust for the children or grandchildren. Appropriate people are making the decisions, and if it's the people themselves, because very often mom and dad say, "Look, we're not trying to, we're not trying to rule from the grave here. We don't mind if our son Johnny and our daughter Sally have access to these assets. We just want to give them some creditor protection, which you can, which they also can get by having these assets in trust, and not include the assets in their estate. But other than that, we'll give them maximum control. Okay." Well, if they have this ascertainable standard, health, education, and support, who watches over them? The IRS doesn't have a big eye watching over them, right? Who might challenge the use of these funds? Because mom and dad don't care. They're, they're, they're per- per- perfectly happy with the, the kids having access. And there's a couple ways you deal with that. One, you can put a special trustee in there someone other than child whose only job is to take that call. I often refer to them as the Maserati trustee. So your children have been driving, uh, they're driving Lexuses, but they're not driving Maseratis. They want a Maserati. They want to use the money to buy a Maserati. Well, let's assume you don't care. They can use the money for anything they want. Is that a reasonable need? Well, maybe not. Well, the special trustee that they put in there, which could be their best friend, can have the right to give them that Maserati officially. And no problem. Well, if you don't have a special trustee, what happens if you want to take that Maserati? Or maybe uh, dad is now 96 years old, his wife's long gone, and he wants to take the round-the-world cruise with his new girlfriend. Is that a reasonable living need? Well, maybe not. What's he do? Doesn't have a special trustee. Who's going to object? I've talked to clients about this all the time. Well, they say, well, maybe my son will object. Well, what I usually say is I don't think your son's going to object. Probably your son's wife is going to say, your dad's 96. Like, come on, what do you need this round the world cruise for two years with his girlfriend for? Tell him it's not a reasonable living need. And I say, well, if if your client says that to you, what do you tell him? You take Johnny in your room and say, Johnny, I love you lots. But I have the ability to change this document. And I can leave your share of this to your brother, or your sister, or maybe I'll give it to the Hare Krishna for all. you So go home, tell your wife or your spouse to be quiet. And that generally serves the purpose. So you can be very, very creative in these things. You get the assets and the growth out of your estate. You give the kids control when you think they should have it. And these things often work very nicely. And then what you do... Oh, go ahead, Kai. You have a question for me just before I say, take the next step?
2: Well, I was just going to say, yeah, that sounds great because we get – there's some flexibility. There's some control in the general concept here of trying to use this $11 million and, project, and protect it in case this number goes down. We've got those assets out. But what if I want a little bit more? What if – how do I get – Is there? can I get my cake and eat it too here a little bit? What, what else we
3: – Well, I think you can to have a good, you have, to have, you have to have a good baker here, I suppose. Various concepts exist. First of all, what are assets worth? Okay, well, if you've got, let's assume you've got some whatever it is, Toyota stock or Google stock in your estate. How do you know what it's worth? Well, you call your broker, or you look in a newspaper, or whatever. Go online, and you know what it's worth. But a technique that we use very often to expand what you can give away. Is We'll take assets, and they can be assets like marketable securities. They could be real estate. Sometimes it's a closely held business. It's all different kinds of assets, depending on what the situation is. And we'll put them into a partnership. Right? And what we're going to do is instead of giving away, I'll keep it simple. Let's, just, let's talk about the Google stock that goes into the partnership. Instead of giving the Google stock away, and we know the stock is worth a million dollars because we just called the broker or you got online, we put it in a partnership. And then what we do, and often that partnership is an LLC, and what we'll do is we'll give away LLC interests. And in this partnership or LLC, we will often have an unrelated party in there sometimes it's a friend who wants to invest with us sometimes the client is somewhat charitably inclined it will bring a charity in for a half a percent or one percent and then what we'll do is in the agreement itself it'll have various controls so even if mom or dad or the managing member of this llc if they want to make distributions in excess of income they want to terminate this they want access we will require that the unrelated parties say yes or no. And often, Most often the unrelated parties are going to say yes, so when they, why would they say no to a distribution? But we take the control away from mom or dad or grandma and grandpa. And the interest they're giving away is a non-controlling interest. So if I, if Chuck Levin or Kyle Malmstrom was going to buy Google stock, what would we pay for? it? Well, it's a million dollars of stock. We pay a million dollars. But if that Partner, if that stock is sitting in a partnership and the person wanting to sell it being the child of the trust that's going to get it wants to sell it, but what they own or what they're going to get is a partnership interest, well, I'm not going to pay the same thing for a partnership interest with Joe over here being the senior partner or the manager. And if I wanted anything, I have to go to him and say we need a distribution. He's liable to say no. I'm going to discount that. I'll buy that partnership interest, but I'm not paying a million bucks. Maybe i only pay 700000 for it or six hundred, or something that an appraiser is going to tell me what a reasonable price is for this controlled interest. And now, even though there's a million dollars of value in there that ultimately this trust for my child or grandchild is going to get the benefit of, the gift I'm making is not a million dollars. The gift is going to be less. So now I've expanded the amount I can give away by using this partnership mechanism. And we do that all the time. That's very, very common, very, very common planning.
2: That sounds like <clears throat> you're right. I would not buy, even if there was a million dollars sitting in this partnership, if I didn't have control over it, I wouldn't pay a million dollars for that. Right. Yeah. And that is, I guess, what your point is. That's very valuable. It would be valuable to me to buy that. And so, you've basically taken. Let me make sure I get this right. Just make sure the audience understands it. You've taken the eleven million, and by giving that controlling interest away, you've made it less valuable to someone else. And then, therefore, when you gift it out into the trust, it's not worth eleven million. Is that what you're saying?
3: That's correct. Now, ultimately, it will be. Obviously, this is a family situation. Eventually, the trust will have access to the dollar, its claim on that $11 million. It may not be the full $11 million, but whatever its claim is, percent of the partnership. But the for gifting purposes, the value is a lesser value because I'm not giving away something that they have access to. It's a lack of access concept that, that, that works very nicely here. And that's, by the way, one of the things that there's some proposals to get rid of family discounting. The IRS acknowledged the concept of family discounting because they were fighting it for a while. Oh, maybe 20, 30 years ago, they came out with a it was a ruling where they indicated that family discounting, where you had you know dad giving interest in his company away to his kids, if it was properly done. The fact that it was a family situation and the family is a group control the enterprise, but the person getting the gift did not have control. They recognize that as a valid discounting concept. That is under some attack now too. And some proposals are out there to get rid of it. So not only is the exclusion of eleven seven under attack today, but the concept of discounting is also under attack. So our clients are trying to use those concepts before they're gone, I mean, they may not be gone. Who knows? Nothing may pass. But you know, the idea is, let's do it today when we know it's here.
2: So, what if, um, to your point, I put fifteen million dollars in there, and I do this strategy, and I get the value to look like eleven seven, and I gift out the eleven seven to the trust, and then the IRS comes in and says, "We don't think that's the right value." We think it's a higher value. How do you? My my knowledge says, hey, you're going to impose a tax on that gift over the eleven seven. How do I? How do I ensure that I don't get hit with a tax before I want it to get assessed to me?
3: Well, okay. Kyle, that's a great question, and a lot of clients are asking that question. And the taxpayers over the years have been trying to deal with that. As you correctly said, I've got a certain amount of gifting. I got eleven seven. Or maybe it's less. Maybe I've used some of it already, so it's a lesser amount. But I know that's what I want to give away. Because if I give away more, I'm going to be subject to gift tax, and currently that's at the 40%. That's a big price to pay. I don't want to do that. And so over the years, there's been a number of cases dealing with that concept. And two cases, fairly recent, have come out that give us a good sort of methodology for dealing with that issue. And that was, by the way, just a super question. The cases are referred to as "wandry" and "king," and we use this, these concepts now all the time. Basically, the concept is this: so you've got a partnership; it's got, let's say, the whole partnership's got twenty million dollars in it. You want to give a certain percent, and what you want to do is you've got gifting of eleven seven. And by the way, husband and wife can combine it together, so it's really more of an eleven seven. The gift can be made by, let's assume, by dad. But mom can agree to, on a gift tax return, to be a part of dad's gift. So as a, as a couple, they've got 23-4 they can play with right now. So let's not forget about that. But whatever the number is you're trying to cut it off at, what you do is instead of saying, okay, I've got $20 million in this partnership. I want to give 11 7 for instance, to this trust for my son or daughter or grandkids, And say 11.7 divided by 20 is whatever percent that's about 57%. So I'm giving 57% of this partnership interest away. You don't do that because you don't really know what that 57% is worth. The way you you do it is you say, I am giving 11.7 away. That's what I'm giving. That's my intent, exactly that number, or whatever the number is that you want. You set forth that number. You go out and you get an appraisal. And they say, well, okay, based upon this appraisal, that would be 57% of his partnership. So then you say, I'm giving away 11.7. I am estimating the percent of this partnership that it represents 11.7, and that's 57%. And if there's a final determination by the IRS, these are some very key words: final determination by the IRS, or a court of competent jurisdiction that says the value is different, then I don't want it back. If it's more, I don't want it back. What I'm gonna do is I'm gonna sell the balance of that to this trust. But the gift is 11.7. I don't intend to give anything more than that. And I'm just using my reasonable estimate as to what percent of the partnership that is. So your question to me, Kyle, maybe, well, that sounds great, Chuck, but what do you mean you're selling it to the trust? You don't want to generate taxable income. There's a lot of built-in gain, a lot of unrealized gain in these partnership assets. And that would be a great question. And the way you deal with that, this is pretty typical planning. Any sophisticated planner knows how to use this stuff. The trust you create is what's called a grantor trust. And to make a trust a grantor trust is pretty simple. All you need to do is give the grantor, the person who's sending it up, the right to replace the assets in the trust. You can take the assets out or one more of the assets or some of the assets as long as those assets are replaced with other assets of the same value. If you have that right, it becomes a grantor trust. And what a grantor trust is for tax purposes is a valid trust for estate planning purposes. The assets in that trust are out of your estate. You've made a valid gift, but key element here, for income tax purposes, that trust is your alter ego. It's you, it's the same thing as you, okay? And Chuck Levin or Kyle Maelstrom cannot sell to yourself. I can't sell an asset to me, I'm the same person. So when you make the gift to the trust, which is a valid gift, and anything over the designated value, eleven seven or whatever it is, a sale you're selling it to yourself, so there's no tax. You take back a note, and very often that note has a nice long term. You, you pay it back, and whatever it is, probably over a period of certain time. Often you have a balloon payment of nine years or something like that. There'll be an interest factor, but even that interest is not generating taxable income because you can't pay interest to yourself. You're just setting it up in a very economic economically secure way, so it's deemed to be a sale for economic purposes, but for tax purposes it's a nothing transaction. So you put in something, you say it's eleven seven we're giving away. If the IRS says or court says it's worth more, you're taking a note back, you're going to be paid over time with probably some of the return that you're earning on those assets will pay you back. And it's not taxable. And an extra bonus you get here. There's a lot of bo- a lot of these things that, that happen in this kind of planning. The like bonus bonuses. is, with a grantor trust, because it is deemed to be you, the income of that trust is taxed to you. Well, you might say, well, what, do I want the income tax to me? It's sending in the trust. It's for the kids. I don't get that income. You're right. You don't. But if you have to pay the tax on it, you're further reducing your estate. And the IRS has said that's not a gift. So it's not an additional gift because the law requires you to pay the tax. So you're paying the tax is not out of the goodness of your heart. It's because the law says you have to pay that tax. Therefore, it's not a gift. And clients will say to me, well, Chuck, that's great, but I might feel rich one year, but what if I say I don't want to pay the tax? I've already given my kids enough or my grandkids enough. Well, what the IRS has said you could do perfectly, totally sanctioned, in that trust, you put a special tax trustee in there, okay? Maybe it's your golfing buddy. just got to be nice to him. Don't beat him too often. And that special tax trustee, the only job he has is to take your phone call when you don't feel rich a particular year and say, I would like to get a distribution from that trust in an amount equal to the tax I have to pay on that trust income. And that person can make that distribution to you. And the having that right to make that phone call does not put those assets back in your estate. It allows you year to figure out how, how rich you feel. One year you may want to get a reimbursement of those taxes. Other years you may say no. It's great. Reduce my estate. Money stays in the trust. as the benefit of my descendants. This is the best of all worlds. And this you know, that, is the kind I, of planning you use.
2: That really addresses the, to exactly to your point, hey, if I put that money out there, what if I need that? and I'm getting this taxation piece, and you and I both know it's always the client first. Right? We got to make sure they're in a good spot, and I think that addresses that. But we're coming up on the time allotment here, and I want to cover one more thing here, and that is, I mean, that's that is a a, a great plan and a great strategy. But what if, what if I, what if my estate's not that big that I can give away all that amount of money? What what am I going to do in this environment? to protect myself against the exemption coming down, but I don't want to give it away forever.
3: Well, that's another great question. I think I'm going to take you to all my meetings, Kyle, and you can really prime the pump here. With If the clients don't ask that question, you can ask that question. And what clients are you using? It's called the acronym for it, it's called the SLAT, Spousal Limited Access Trust. And what you might want to do is say, look, I love my kids, but you know, who knows what I'm going to need here. I'm only 46 years old. I've got a nice estate, but I plan to live for another 60 or 70 years. And uh, I, only want to, I don't want to give it to the kids right now. So what you do is, for instance, take one situation. A husband will create a trust for his wife. And instead of using what's known as the marital deduction, where you can give as much as you want to your spouse, you put assets in a trust. It's going to be a grantor trust. You can make your spouse the trustee. You limit her to the ascertainable standard that we talked about before, so it's not includable in her estate, but it's obviously utilizable by her, and as long as you're nice to her, it's utilizable, I imagine, by you also. Take your vacations with the money in there, but the money is now you're using your exclusion. It's now out of her estate. Any growth is out of her estate, and you're not giving it away to the kids. And that's a very typical technique that's used, and Sometimes, uh, when we talk to a client about it, they say, well, okay, I might set one up for my wife, but can she also set up one for me? And the answer is, well, yes, but there, you got to be pretty careful there. There's something called the reciprocal trust, trust doctrine. So if I set up a trust for my wife, and she sets up one for me, and they have the same terms in them, it's like we really haven't given anything away, and the whole thing sort of falls and fails. So you need to make these trusts different. So they're respected as separate trusts, but it, it does work if you do it very, very carefully. And there's even a technique, I don't have to get into it right now, but whereas I set something up for my wife and she may set something up for me, if she dies first and I may want access to that money, but now she's gone, there is a technique that maybe I can have some access to that money because I'm not ready for it to go to the kids or the grandkids until both of us are gone. And there's things you can do to potentially get you there. So there's a lot of creative planning here. What I tell my clients are, get a good night's sleep because I'm going to challenge you with this. It's not if I challenge you, it's not because I think you're wrong. It's because we want to have critical thinking to get all these things on the table. Plan with your personal desires and goals in mind first. And then let's use the best tax planning to accomplish your personal goals and desires. So there's a lot of neat things we can do, both here and also in the. do a lot of planning in the corporate sector, in the partnership sector with uh, uh, sections 199A, which I don't have time to get into now, but very, very important to a lot of our business-type clients. And planning, dealing with self-employment tax, all these areas come up in, in our practice uh, with respect to our state planning clients, which can often become our business clients and vice versa. So Anyway, that's Chuck, in a nutshell the story.
2: Of... Yeah, that's tons of great. And clearly, we could sit here and talk for hours. Uh, what you've given the audience today is super valuable, tons of information. I am honored to have you on the call with us today. We've worked together in the past, and I, I know the level of detail and creativity your firm offers. If someone needed to get in touch with you, Chuck, how do they do that?
3: Well, you can look up Levin Goodman and Cohen. And Levin is L-E-V-U-N. So, if you can't, you've got to spell it right. Levin Goodman and Cohen. You look up our website. Our, our phone number is 847-509-7700, You can go on Facebook and look up, talk about look at our programs. Tax Forum, T-A-X-F-O-R-U-M-L-L-C. You go to LinkedIn. We're on Tax Forum, F-O-R-U-M, on LinkedIn. We got a website both for our firm or for tax forums with an S on the end. So, plenty of ways to get a hold of me. Love to. I'm a very fortunate guy. I've been doing this for a while, and I meet new people all the time. It's a real honor to be able to work and and, and help people. And, and Kyle, thank you very much for giving me this opportunity to express these ideas. It's always a pleasure talking with you and working with you folks. You've got a great organization. The, Work with you. I've worked with uh, Jonathan at your organization and uh, Lynn. You got great people. So thank you very much for this opportunity and this honor.
2: You're welcome. My pleasure.
1: Chuck and Kyle, this has been yeah, yeah. This is fantastic. Holy cow! I I do want to end with this, Kyle. You've got a lot of listeners now. This is nationwide. If they want to reach out to you to to either reach Chuck or just talk about planning, because that was the theme of what's going on today or the entire podcast. There's a lot of complication in all these different strategies. If they want to reach you guys, how do they get a hold of you?
2: Yeah, just centurowealth.com or our phone number is 858-771-9500. Pretty easy to find us on the web. Absolutely. Pretty easy.
1: Again, Chuck, thank you so much for being on the show. And Kyle, of course, thank you for bringing him on the show. But our last thank you is always to you, the listening audience. Thank you so much for tuning in and listening to the Live Life Liberated podcast with the team from Centura Wealth Advisory. If you have not subscribed to the podcast yet, please click the subscribe now button below. This will when they come out with a new podcast. It'll show up directly on your listening device. This makes it much easier to share these podcasts with your friends and family. Again, thanks for listening today. For everyone at Centura Wealth Advisory, this is Eric Johnson reminding you to live your best day every day. And we'll see you next time.
0: Thank you for listening to the Live Life Liberated podcast. Click the subscribe button below to be notified when new episodes become available. Centura Wealth Advisory, Centura, is an SEC-registered investment advisor with its principal place of business in San Diego, California. Centura and its representatives are in compliance with the current registration and notice filing requirements imposed on SEC-registered investment advisors, in which Centura maintains clients. Centura may only transact business in those states in which it is notice-filed or qualifies for an exemption or exclusion from notice-filing requirements. Past performance is no guarantee of future results. Tax relief varies based on client circumstances and all clients do not achieve the same results.